Ezra 6. And as we begin, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word again, that it is our food. I pray that this morning you would help me preach and that you would draw attention to what you say, your authority, not mine, not anyone else's. You speak to us because you love us. You want us to know you. And I pray that we would know you this morning as the God who is in control and works for the joy of his people. Help us now by the Spirit, not by the efforts of men and women, but by your Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so when we started Ezra, this book, we said it could be broken down into two major episodes. It can be broken down into chapters 1 through 6 and chapters 7 through 10. So chapters 1 through 6 are the first major episode, and they're about the rebuilding of the temple. When the exiles come out of Persia, and they're rebuilding the temple that had been destroyed by Babylon. So we're finishing the first episode, the first major storyline today. Chapter 6 is the last chapter in this episode. And because it is, because it's the last chapter in the first major storyline, we're going to see several of the themes that we've already seen in the previous chapters. And we'll see them as we go along. What we're going to do first is we're just going to walk through what's happening in this story. Just an overview of what goes on to resolve this story in chapter 6. And then we're going to make three observations. So an overview and then three more detailed observations. The first two are going to be short and the third is going to be our longest. It's where we're going to spend about half our time is on the third observation. So here's the overview as we start. The Jews have been trying to rebuild the temple since chapter 3. So they were told in chapter 1 they could return and rebuild the temple. Chapter 2 was mostly a genealogy. Chapter 3 is when they're trying to rebuild the temple. So God moves the heart of King Cyrus, chapter 1, to free the Jews to return and rebuild the temple. But the people surrounding the Jews harass them, persecute them, bully them until they stop. And when the, when the work restarts, 15 years have gone by. So they're harassed into stopping, 15 years go by. And then, in this chapter, we're going to see the Persian officials try to shut down the work again. That was actually last chapter. We're going to see this week how it blows up in their face. Last week was how the Persian officials try to shut down the work of rebuilding the temple. They question the Jews. They write down the names of the leaders, if you remember that. And they send the names of the leaders to the new king, King Darius in Persia, thinking that when he hears what's going on, he's going to shut it down permanently. But it does blow up in their faces because, and now we're in our chapter, King Darius finds the original decree that Cyrus made in chapter 1. So as you're looking at chapter 6 in front of you, verses 1 through 5 are King Darius finding the original decree. He tells the Persian officials after he finds this decree, he tells the, the officials who complained, keep away, leave the work alone. That's verses 6 and 7 of our chapter. Then he tells them they need to pay for the temple to be rebuilt 
with Persian money from their territories. So that's verse 8. And not only that, they need to provide the daily sacrifices for the Jews. Verses 9 through 10. And not only that, but if anyone changes what the king is commanding the Persian officials to do here, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, he shall be impaled on it, and then his house shall be made into a dunghill. So that's verse 11. And the Persian officials, it says, they do what Darius told them with all diligence. You better believe they did it with all diligence. This is not a 400 Durham fine. This is being impaled and your house being made into a dunghill. So the temple's finished. That's what happens here. The temple is finally finished. After all these years, it's finished. The Jews, they order themselves according to the law of Moses. They purify themselves. You heard Priscilla just read this. And they celebrate the Passover with joy. Now, let's make some more detailed observations from this chapter. Observation one. The Jews in this chapter are strengthened to obey God's word through God's word. We've seen this before. The Jews were rebuilding the temple because God told them to. And you see from what Priscilla just read, they ordered themselves according to the commands written in the law of Moses. So verses 17 and 18. The Jews offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. So we pointed this out when we were in chapter 3. Ezra, again and again, is highlighting this truth. If you want to obey God, then you need to obey what he says in his word. You don't just make up things that you want to obey. A lot of people do that. They ignore the Bible completely and they live the life they think would please God and they just ignore what he says. That's not how you obey him. This book points out again and again, when these people wanted to obey God, they went to his word. They tried to see what it said and that's what they did. So these people are diligently going to the word and obeying it. But Ezra also shows that the power to obey the commands of God's word come from the encouragements of God's word. So it's not just commands. There are also encouragements in God's word. Look at verse 14. The elders of the Jews built and prospered. They built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, the son of Iddo. So God was speaking through Haggai and through Zechariah, the prophets, and he was speaking promises to the people. He was saying, I'll be your help. I'll be your strength. I'm watching. I see what's going on. I see what they're doing to you, and I'm watching your diligent obedience, and I'm going to supply all the resources you need. And it was this encouragement that prospered the Jews. That's what verse 14 is telling us. God's word has many commands in it. There are lots of commands in God's word, and it's not just the Old Testament. The New Testament is filled with commands as well. 
But God doesn't just give us commands to obey. He also gives us encouragements and promises. He tells us the kind of God he is. That's really what this book is doing. It's telling us the kind of God he is and who he will be for us as we follow him. And when we believe that, that's how the Spirit strengthens us to obey what he commands. So the word of God is not just a map that tells you where to go and what to do on your journey. It's also the food that strengthens you as you go where he wants you to go and as you do what he wants you to do. The Spirit of God does give you directions for your life in his word, but he also fills you with power through his word so that you can obey it. Take this word seriously. <laughs> Take it seriously. I mean, I, this is probably the most common plea I make in in church, is to take this seriously. This is how we know God. It's how we know what he wants for us, and it's how he empowers us by the Spirit to obey him. So love it. Feast on this word. That was the first observation, that the Jews are strengthened to obey God's word through God's word. Here's the second short observation. Access to God is not about your ethnicity. This is really important for later on in the book, but I want you to see it here. In verse 21, the Passover lamb is sacrificed and eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. Did you hear that? So the exiles are eating the Passover along with everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land. It was not easy to enter the old covenant people of God. It wasn't easy. If you, wanted, if you were not a Jew, born a Jew, it wasn't easy to become a member of the old covenant. Circumcision, food laws, all sorts of rituals for cleanness, uncleanness, regulations for almost all of life, but it was allowed. Having a relationship with the living God was not exclusive to people who were ethnically Jewish. In fact, God's purpose in entering into a covenant with the Jewish people all along was so that through them, all the ethnicities and families of the world could know God. That was the point all along. And when Jesus came as a Jew, he brought the old covenant to a close when he died on the cross for us, and he unlocked the way for anyone, no matter what you look like, who your parents are, where you come from, by faith alone, trusting in Jesus, you can go straight to God. That's what Jesus has done. So it was true even back then that access to God was not about your ethnicity, but now that Christ has come, not only can all ethnicities have access, Jesus commands that they come, and he will have them. Remember, there is no such thing as a Muslim ethnicity 
or a Hindu ethnicity or a Buddhist ethnicity or a Christian ethnicity. There's not. You can't say, well, those kinds of people are Christian peoples. Those kinds of people are Muslim people or Hindu or Buddhist. No. Jesus Christ made them all. And on the cross, he was unlocking the way for every single one of them to come to the living God simply by believing. And he's told us to go and see it through. And he's promised that he'll be with us as we go. So observation two, access to God is not about your ethnicity. That was true then. And is it ever true now? Observation three, this is the longest one where we'll spend most of our time. God has happy purposes in every hard-to-understand providence. God has happy purposes in every hard-to-understand providence. That word providence just means whatever God in his wisdom brings about. So God in his wisdom is bringing things about all the time. That's providence. Because he's all wise and because he's in control, whatever happens is according to God's wisdom. It's his providence. And we see that providence. We see that control in verse 14. Verse 14 says this, The elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo, They finished their building by the decree of the God of Israel. So that's a command. That's what a decree is. God commanded that the temple would be finished. And that's why it was. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So what's the relationship between these decrees? Did you hear that? There there are several decrees happening. God decrees that the temple will be finished, and so did Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, and it says that's why the temple was finished. What's the relationship between God's decree that the temple be finished and the decrees of the kings that the temple be finished? Are these four separate permissions? Like, God gives his permission... But you also need Cyrus's, and you also need Darius's, and you also need Artaxerxes. It's kind of like the paperwork you do in the UAE. You go to one place, you get a stamp. You take it somewhere else, you get a copy-made approval, and then you take it somewhere else to get a stamp. For us to be in this building, we had to have three permissions. We had to have permission from the church center. They gave it to us. Permission from the Department of Community Development, and then permission from the police. Is that what verse 14 is saying? The Jews needed four stamps. God, Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes. Chalas. It can be done now. The temple can be finished. No. The relationship between the decree of God and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes is explained in verse 22. Look at it. The Jews kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy for... The Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them. God had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them. 
so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes decreed what they decreed because God had decreed that they would. He turned their hearts to decree it. God decreed that the work would be finished, and his decree makes every other decree happen. That's the relationship between these decrees, not four separate stamps. This was the essence of chapter 1, if you remember all the way back to the beginning, that God's decree is what turns the hearts of kings. He holds the hearts of kings in his hand. He directs it wherever he wills. History is his, and he moves it wherever he wants to. Ephesians 1.11 says this, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. So imagine all things right here. This is all things that God works according to the counsel of his will. What else is there? Nothing. There is nothing that God doesn't work according to the counsel of his will. God works everything, all things, anything you can think of, according to the counsel of his will. Whatever he wants happens. If he decrees it, it happens. If it happens, it's because he decreed it. And Ezra 6 is an example. The policies of nations, the decrees of kings, the desires of their hearts are moved according to the decree of God. Now, this chapter is closing out the first episode, the first major storyline. The temple's finished. That's big resolution for what we've been going through the last several weeks. And as we finish the first course of the meal that is Ezra, the taste that this book wants to leave in our mouths is joy. Joy. Did you hear that when Priscilla was reading? Look at verse 16. The people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. Verse 22. And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful. So through it all, through all we've been through over the last five weeks, God was working to make them happy. Verse 22 is emphasizing that. God's the one who did it. They kept the feasts of unleavened bread seven days with joy for, or because, the Lord had made them joyful. And now, now it's going to explain the connection between their joy and God's providence, his control. And God had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. This is what God was working all along. Through his sovereign, almighty control, God was preparing joy. Consider what the Jews had been through. They had gotten amazing news. They were free to move back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And then they move back, and when they get there, they're bullied, they're intimidated into stopping. 
You must be thinking, wait, we just traveled 900 miles for this God to be persecuted? Why? Why? Why is this happening? And then, when the work begins again, after 15 years, the authorities come and take down their names, expecting that when they send them to the king, he's going to shut them down permanently. Why, God? Why? Why are we being questioned now by the Persian officials? They're writing our names down. What is going on? What is God doing? He's teaching them to rely on him. He's getting the temple paid for. And he's doing it exactly 70 years after the exile just like he promised he would. This roller coaster, progress, setback, frustration, problems was not a waste of time for God. It was right on time for God. Because God is in control, he's using these setbacks, these delays, these oppositions to produce a more amazing outcome than they could have imagined. The nations around them are paying for the temple. You may not remember this, but Luke actually read that last week in Haggai. God said, things look small to you right now, but guess what? The nations are about to pay for this. And it happened. And even though it was hard and it took 15 years longer than the people would have wanted it to take, it was finished right on time. That's verse 15, by the way. Verse 15 tells us, the year of Darius's reign, the sixth year, 70 years after the exile began. And the result was joy. One of the great struggles of your life will be, it is, to believe that when life does not go the way you hoped it would, that God is in control and he is working for your joy if you're in Christ. Are any of you at a place in life and you hoped you would be somewhere different? You thought you'd be somewhere different. I thought I'd be married. I thought I'd have kids at this point. I thought I'd be further along in my career. I thought I'd actually be financially stable at this point in my life. I was not planning on life to turn out this way. I wasn't planning on this person to get sick and need me. I wasn't expecting to be here for so long. Are any of you wondering why you're suffering, sick, or stuck? It is not meaningless. I'll repeat that. It is not meaningless. You will have to surrender to God's plan. And it will not be what you would have planned for yourself you will have to surrender to God's timing and it will not be in the time you would have wanted for yourself. But when you do surrender, you will get peace and contentment and Jesus Christ will look great in your life. And the key, the key for your peace and contentment, the key for Jesus Christ to look great in your life when you're in the middle of hard-to-understand circumstances is believing that he's in control and that he is working. 
He's working for your joy in what you do not understand. Do you know the story of Job? Job trusts the Lord. He lives his life for God. The book starts that way, making it super clear. He trusts God. He really does. He really is living for God's sake. And then everything is taken from him. His health, his belongings, his reputation, his family. And Job doesn't know why. We, as the readers of Job, we know why. We see the backstory. Job never finds out. Why, God? I'm living for you. What's happening? Why have you done this to me? God was actually showing Job more of who he is. He was putting Satan to shame. And he was going to make Job flourish more than before in the end. And James 5.11, Luke preached it last summer. James 5.11 says this about Job. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. When life is hard and frustrating and confusing, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. One of the reasons that Job went through the suffering he went through and he didn't know why he was going through it and then came through it with more joy was so that you and I would know when life is hard and we don't know why and that will happen lots in this life that God has a purpose and in his purpose he's being compassionate and merciful. If you want peace when you don't understand what's going on, you need this truth. Here's another way the New Testament says it, probably the most famous way the New Testament says it. Romans 8, 28 and 29. Just treasure these verses. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. I've heard hurting people say that they don't like Romans 8, 28, and 29 thrown at their pain. They don't want to hear this verse when things are hard. It's because people just throw it, throw it out to you and they don't really understand how deep your pain is. When that happens, your dad dies, someone comes up to you and says, hey, you know, God's working good for you. The problem is not this verse or the truth that's in this verse. The problem's how the person shared it. Don't despise Romans 8, 28 and 29 because some people use it wrongly. <laughs> this is so precious. It's like despising the pill that can cure your cancer because one time some people threw it at you. That was irritating. The problem's not the medicine. It's how it was given to you and how it was received. But if you take it the right way, this will keep you alive. This is a promise. It's a promise from God. I hope you know he doesn't break his promises. It's a promise that all things will work for your good if you're a lover of Christ. (laughs) All things. There's nothing outside of that. All things. Sickness, 
all things. Poverty, all things. Pain, loss, death, all things. Through all things, in his wisdom, verse 29 says, God is working your conformity to Jesus. He's making you like Jesus. And since Jesus is the happiest human alive, that's good news. Did you guys hear that in John 15, what what Luke read before he prayed? Jesus says, I'm telling you this so that my joy would be in you. He's not just upping the levels on our current joy. He's saying, I'm doing what I'm doing to take the infinite, explosive joy I have always had with God, and I'm working to put it inside of you. That's what God is doing. So in all your detours, frustrations, waiting where you don't want to be, preach this to yourself. The God who is in control is working your joy. Jesus died so that would be true of those who love him. Here's an example from this week. It's a small example, but it's an example of how this truth should change things. If you've been around for a while, you know that we've been trying to get a bank account for our church. So it was a long, frustrating process submitting paperwork. However, finally we were granted permission to have a banking account by the authorities last year. So our permission, it falls underneath the license of the church compound, but we got one. September of last year, we put a bunch of the church's money into it, and then almost immediately, the church compound's license expired, and so we lost access to our bank account with all the money that we had put in it. For almost five months, we couldn't couldn't touch the church's money in the account. Then in March, we were able to get back into the account, praise the Lord, only to find out this week, through an error, no one's fault really, Luke and I have been shut out of the account. (laughs) So yet again, here we are. We don't have access, and we're not really even sure what steps we need to take to get back to our church's bank account and the money that's in it. So on Wednesday, when Luke and I found this out, we were feeling pretty irritated. Why? Why? What is the point of this storyline? I mean, we get access, we lose it. We get it, we lose it. Why, God? Why is this happening? That's a fairly normal kind of frustration, isn't it? That's the kind of stuff that happens all the time. But it's exactly the kind of thing that God wants us to go to him with. It's not what we were planning. It doesn't really seem like it makes any sense. Why can't we just have a bank account and keep it? In that kind of moment, God does not want us to be anxious. He he doesn't want us to be sinfully angry or rude or impatient. He wants us to be at peace and content in him. He really does want those things for us. And this truth is what empowers it in the big things and the little things. Here's what we don't know. We don't know how it's going to turn out. We don't. It could be that in the end we get a better banking situation than we could have ever dreamed. It could be that we lose our bank account forever. Or it could be some sort of answer in the middle. We don't know. But what we do know is that God's purpose in the end is to produce joy. Now, losing access to our bank account is not chronic pain. It's not cancer. 
It's not waiting, feeling stuck, confused for months and years. But the truth we needed on Wednesday was the same. It's the same. God's purpose is joy. Jesus Christ loves you. I hope you know that. He suffered more than anyone because he loves you. And his suffering secures for you in every hard-to-understand circumstance, even the most deeply painful ones. His suffering secures for every pain and loss that God is producing joy. He's in control and he has purposes. So trust him. It's what he's bought for you. It's what he wants you to know and it's what he wants you to rest in and that's how he's going to look great in you. Let's pray.